Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So a couple of months ago, I saw a TED Talk by a woman named Sarah Menka called A Global Food Crisis Maybe Less Than a Decade Away. It was truly fascinating, truly scary, uh, and also a little uplifting, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, So Sarah is a genius who started a company called Grow Intelligence. Um, I'm going to let her explain what it does and how it works using artificial intelligence and markets and all these things. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about why I decided that she would be the perfect guest this week. So it's Thanksgiving. We're all fat and full after too much turkey and whatnot. And after seeing this video, realized that that there's a topic that we don't really ever get to because um, we're so focused on Facebook and all these things uh, and Donald Trump. And the topic is that in about a decade, there are going to be billions of people on this planet who will not be able to eat. There will be not enough food for them. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for this that Sarah is going to explain from uh, geopolitical reasons to climate change to the fact that we are growing as a population at a, a speed that is just unstoppable. Um, So I thought this would be the perfect week to have this conversation. So it's a really amazing conversation. It's a little scary, but at the end of it, you'll see there is actually a solution to the problem. Sarah Menker, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, After Thanksgiving turkey, it is a perfect conversation to be having about uh, food shortage around the world. Um, Before we get to all that, um, how did you end up becoming the person that was the expert on this topic? Um, So I uh, started off my career um, out of college becoming a commodities trader. And I did not trade agriculture. I actually traded energy. Um, And in 2008, I worked at, you know, a big investment bank and I was managing energy options. And in 2008, when the financial crisis happened, I had some colleagues who started to feel like the world was coming to an end because our stock price was going to zero. And one in particular believed that the perfect hedge to the end of the world was to buy as much gold as possible. So literally every single day he was just buying bars and bars of gold and coins. Like So basically gold in all sorts of formats. And one day I had a big argument with him where I said, you know, you're going to feel really dumb when the world comes to an end and I'm going to give you a sack of potatoes in exchange for a bar of gold. And that just kind of opened the doors to me wanting to buy land so I could sell him a sack of potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, does he still have that goal? Do we know? He's semi-retired in Texas now. Got so. it. So he made the right choice. Okay. Although Texas, I mean, it's still a red state and they voted for, for uh, that guy. So anyway. Um, okay. So you start looking at, uh, at food uh, and come to this realization that uh and i the irony of this is actually that we you know we are talking about this around thanksgiving when uh there is this kind of gluttony happening in america um and you know gluttony for good reasons of course but um but what is it that what's your worry like what is the thing that really gets you to this point where you realize that that how many years from now we actually could be running out of food I think the, the you know the worry is stems from the fact that we have a highly unstable food system, a highly unstable agricultural system, and the reason is that you basically have a small group of countries that are essentially responsible for feeding a huge part of the world population. And so you have a complete imbalance that's occurred in terms of, you know, countries with excess calories that they're producing and countries with huge deficits that they fill in 
with trade, right? And so you have a system that's really stressed and highly dependent on a few countries to continue feeding the world. And that starts to hit its theoretical limit of what's achievable. Did part of it start because, you know, we live in a, you know, if I walked into Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or something today, um, I would see a you know, raspberries that are not in season here, but are in South America or something like that. Did part of this globalization of food start because we demanded that we could get everything anywhere, anytime year round? Or was it more that uh, it became, there are countries that are in need and we can supply it to them or vice versa? The globalization of food was the latter, right? Is that you had countries like China and India that were rapidly growing, right? So from a population standpoint, basically, you know, if you look at China, India, and the continent of Africa, um, just call it a continent because it's not a country. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And when you look at those three uh, populations, you had a massive population growth spurt occurring at the same time as no productivity growth in these countries. And why was there no productivity growth? Productivity. And so you had, for different reasons, right? So... Um, in, in Africa, it's just the lack of functioning capital markets to drive the cost of capital down. So you basically have mostly very, very small scale farms that are producing for their own consumption, right? So subsistence farming is the way of living and the way of life. And so the commercialization in any way, right? So it doesn't even have to be mega commercialization. The industry just hasn't been commercialized. And so you have highly depressed yields and increased population that couldn't be met through local supply. Anywhere on the continent. And you, so I, you, you did a TED talk that I watched, and you talked about the way to solve this problem is, um, is, com- is more commercial farming, right? But before we get to that, I, the question I have is what is like the worst case scenario for this? Is it that X amount of people in the, in, on the, in the planet are unable to eat? Is it what happens? Yeah, I mean, the, the best way to think about it is in the next eight to 10 years. You have, we estimate that we're going to have a gap of about 214 trillion calories of food that cannot be produced in any region in the world, right? So this is basically a deficit that we need to, a gap that we need to fill by being more productive, not by planting more land. So so by being more productive on the land that we've already planted or... a combination of and, yeah. what, and what exactly like how how much food is two hundred and fourteen trillion calories? Is it is there a way to is it a football size field size? Like what are we what are we talking about here? Yeah, so I mean the way that we chose to summarize this is in Big Macs, of course, um, because we 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 actually looked at a lot of different ways to look at it. A Big Macs essentially won, right? And that's because a you already have things like the Big Mac index. Um, a Big Mac has five hundred sixty three calories. Okay, right. And so if you look at what the shortage is, you're looking at three hundred seventy nine billion Big Macs. Three hundred seventy nine billion Big Macs. Isn't that more than they've sold? Yeah. Ever. Yeah. In wow. the history of McDonald's. So that's, and that's a yearly, so that every year there will be that deficit? Yes, so that is the deficit, that you, the annual deficit that you will create. And so if this is not, if this is a problem that we do not solve, um, is it, are we talking about famine? Are we talking about, like, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking about potentially failed governments and states um, because, I mean, we have seen uprisings before 
Um, over just food just over either food shortages or excessive inflation, right? I mean, there's everything at a cost. You get it there, but yeah. if it's you have excessive inflation, you also you it leads to that. And so you can have failed states. Um, you can certainly have lots of famine. And we have seen and continue to see famine around the world. Um, and so the implications are very real, and they're not that far away. So today. Uh, we're kind of seeing this happen a little bit, right? There's, what, 795 million people around the world that are starving. Um, and yet, the I forget the statistic, but it's like, isn't it like 30, 40% of food in America just goes to waste? Like, can't we just transfer these things and figure out a way to solve the problem that way? Yes. Like, can I go give someone my leftover Thanksgiving turkey and <laughs> transport it just trans- like some drone system <laughs> across or? To, to China? Yeah, um, that would be amazing. Um, and is part. So, I guess the question is: Is part of the solution that the the amount of food already exists today and it's just not being evenly distributed, or is it that even if you were to evenly distribute it, that there would still be massive? Famine. You have both, right? I mean, because you talk about food waste. Another thing that people don't love to talk about is ethanol. So 40% of the corn produced in the U.S. goes into ethanol. The U.S. is the world's largest producer of corn. Wow. So there is that solution too, (laughs) which is find... And has has that been on the rise over the years or it's... And not only has it been on the rise, the adoption of ethanol is now moving into regions such as China. So China very quietly passed a mandate um, at the end of last year with the goal to pass what's called E10. Um, That's basically 10% blended ethanol across the country. And what is it all used for? The ethanol? For cars. Just for cars, that's it. Yeah, it's just fuel. Uh, it's it's viewed as a cleaner fuel, right? And and so so as we feed our cars, we're feeding less people? Essentially, that's exciting. So, uh, so you have you have that. You also have the diets that animals eat, for example, can be shifted to right. Because if you look at beef produced in the United States, um, it's mostly corn fed. Mm. Beef produced in Australia or New Zealand is grass fed. Very different types of terrains that those two crops grow in, and essentially you can create a, a food system that's not actually competing and optimized, you know, to essentially grow what is necessary, but also balances out, you know, the caloric intake that we as humans need, which is, you know, we can't feed every human being all the corn in the world either. That's not a solution. So um, so when you kind of look at the statistics about, um, about the directions is going, what percentage of it is related to... Um, you know, a rise in population, and and it's, I mean, expected to continue to grow rapidly over the next uh, 50, 100 years, all the statistics say um, that we're going to overpopulate the earth, and and um, uh, I'm not sure if Elon Musk has enough room in his spaceship for all of us, but um, uh, to go to Mars, but, uh, but what percentage of it is, um, is that, and the other, the, and versus the thing that keeps me up at night these days, uh, climate change, where there are going to be regions of the world where you will not be able to grow food. Um, I know so, it's a, a lot of question there to unpack. I know. I'm mean, like, climate is a whole other beast. Um, so let's start with population growth. Okay. You have, it's a combination of not just population growth. It's a combination of population growth plus economic growth, right? Because as you have population growth, you're just saying you have, you know, 
more people, and so therefore some type of linear predicted um, trajectory. But then you have economic growth, which is combined with a shift in tastes and diet, that which means that you know, as this is this is actually what fueled a huge portion of the demand over the last 40 years is that not only did you have population growth, you had increasingly wealthy societies that ate a lot more protein, hmm. right? So as you have larger and wealthier society, then you have a lot more consumption. So it's not a one-to-one relationship. And that in the face of climate change. Got it. Um, and where you, if you look at the climate change statistics, unfortunately, the countries that are struggling the most with climate change are essentially the same countries that are the least productive today. But you, but you think that there's a solution where you can farm more, but how would you do that if X percentage of the planet is, is, is non-farmable? I mean, I mean, it's interesting, you know, I, we live in LA and just, uh, just this week, um, on the mountain right behind me, like a hundred yards away, there was a fire, and there was helicopters flying over us and and putting uh, putting it out with uh, with pool water and things like that. And that would never have happened just a few years ago because that mountain would have had more rain and the vegetation wouldn't have burned as quickly and and so on. And I, how do you even add more farming in a situation where? Uh, the temperatures rising, there's less rain in the in around the equator and so on. Yeah, so it's it's a combination of of less but also more volatile, right? So and and sometimes volatility and patterns of climate are just as dangerous as too much or too little, right? Because if you have too much or too little, yeah. you can actually plan effectively. Mm. But when it zigzags, that's when you have that level of volatility, that's when it becomes very hard to manage. And I think the way you solve for that is a understanding our food systems and our agricultural systems from all the way to earth, from earth and climate to markets and how those are connected and linked and understanding the relationship between crops and between countries in a very dynamic way does help you better manage the risk. And it also helps you drive productivity in the regions where you have yields that are, you know, 5x lower than uh, yields in the United States, right? So there's lots of room for growth in so many parts of the world in terms of just optimizing existing farmland. So when you look at a company, a, a, a continent like Africa, um, or even a country like China, which um, uh, has suffered from this, and is is it essentially the reason that they have lagged is because of climate and the the terrain that they can grow on and so on or is it is there something else to it lack of well functioning markets That's um, it. and 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 part of why i started grow and and well, that tell people became... tell people what grow is because we haven't mentioned that <laughs> we yet. haven't mentioned that so yeah. grow grow uh grow intelligence is the company i started after i sufficiently became obsessed with my potato farming idea and decided that becoming a farmer was a terrible idea. Um, But the reason I started Grow Intelligence was exactly that, which is when I started to look into the economics of farming, I realized how quickly, I very quickly realized how difficult it was going to be to make the economics work. Got it. And the solution to making the economics of production work in any commodity is effective capital markets where risk is managed appropriately. I mean, that's what we did in oil, that's what we do in gas, that's what we do in power. But that structural system doesn't exist in agriculture because it's so complicated. And how how is it more complicated than these other 
commodities. And- so I'll give you an example. Um, when I used to trade natural gas, every morning I knew what every molecule of gas was doing across every pipeline in America every day. I would walk in and I had I, a I mean, system. who doesn't? Come on. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Really weird knowledge. But, you know, I would walk into the office and I had all sorts of scrapes and systems that basically took data from reporting pipelines and energy companies to try and estimate what the daily supply was and then what the daily offtake was in the demand, right? And that balance between supply and demand is what drive that drives prices on a daily basis. The better you can predict that, the better you can predict pricing, the better you can predict pricing, the more transactions you can have. Now... Natural gas is a single commodity. Oil is a single commodity. There's many grades of it, but how you produce it is fundamentally the same. Hmm. You drill, there's very high capex costs, and so therefore production of it is rather concentrated. So you have very few producers. Whereas if you look at agriculture, what is agriculture? It's like tens of thousands of different crops. It's been around since the Neolithic Revolution. And every single crop has a very different set of parameters like scientific parameters that drive how it grows and what it can and cannot do. And the demand side is also super fragmented, right? So you have highly fragmented supply, highly fragmented demand, very, very difficult to model. And so what is it that you're doing that you're able to model it now? So we built a company that now has the world's largest repository of any form of information related to global agriculture. We're tracking over 35 million signals that are related to agriculture. So it could be climate signals, but it could also be infrastructure signals in a country to figure out you know, what kinds of roads exist to be able to move crops in and out of a country. It's demographic signals, it's price signals. And so we, what we've done is we've ingested all of this highly fragmented data that exists and created a language that normalizes all of that. Um, and then once we've done that, we've built a massive predictive engine on top of it. So that's essentially AI that you've built on top of it? Yeah, or And an so AI. how can you explain in like a, a best as a layman's term as you can, like how a, an example of this, how it would work yeah. with some food thing? <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, Except some, turkeys. I don't want to talk about turkeys. Some food thing. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, so... At a very fundamental level, if you think about what drives any agricultural market or any food price, it's supply versus demand and trade that puts it together. Now, if you think of the supply side, let's take a simple crop like corn that everybody knows about, right? You need to be able to predict before planting starts what you think farmers are going to plant every season because you need to be able to understand how if it, like seed companies need to know how much type of seed to produce for each region. Now, at that point, you then start going into planting season. When you're going into planting season, we have to build forecast models that start to forecast yields and production on a daily basis for every region in the world for that crop. So now you're building out you know, that predictive model. When you're building that predictive model out, you're putting in a lot of environmental signals, you're putting in a lot of climate data, but you're also putting in a lot of market data to basically be able to run algorithms that on an automated basis can forecast these yields for you. So what we've come up with is a suite of machine learning models that run very micro level forecasts for that specific crop in that specific region. Now think of doing that for every country crop combination for supply and then doing that in terms of demand. And then you're matching it all together. Yeah. And where are the data points coming from? So the data points that we take can come anywhere from 
um, ingesting large amounts of satellite imagery from NASA, from the European Space Agency, to collecting data from a network of over 150,000 weather stations around the world, to uh, reports that are basically published by governments all around the world. And these reports are actually a treasure trove of information, and they're reported in the worst format you could possibly imagine, sure, yeah. and in highly localized languages, right? So, for example, in Brazil, the best data is produced in Portuguese. In India, it's even worse. They'll report it in PDF files with scanned images on top of it, and they'll mix three languages in one file for you. So we take that combination of data and merge all of that together. And are you then, so then what, what do you do with that? Are you selling it to, to agricultural company? Like what, where is it going and what's, yeah. what's happening so, with it? So we work with um, multiple segments of customers. We sell to agricultural companies. And in that case, we're looking at input company seeds, chemicals companies that are supplying seed and, and fertilizer to farmers. We're selling it to food and beverage companies that are actually buying produce for farmers. So procurement guys who can better optimize purchasing um, of every kind of crop that they would be buying, right? So large consumer brands or wholesalers of fresh produce. Um, we then also work with financial institutions. Now, financial institutions, one segment of financial institutions we work with are the really large lending institutions that are lending to farmers. They use our data and our models to better inform their credit strategy, right? So you drive more capital into markets that way. We work with insurance companies that use our models, but also some of the underlying data we have to build better insurance products for farmers. Hmm. And this is at global scale. We also then work with hedge funds who use this data to trade all sorts of markets, agriculture, but also non-agricultural markets that could be related to agriculture. So a perfect example of that is um, if you think of Argentina uh, and, and the, the situation that Argentina was in earlier this year where it had a terrible drought and it was also obviously going through some pretty tough economic times. Argentina's foreign exchange reserves are highly dependent on the export of soybeans. So you could take I remember the reading output, all about this. Yeah. So you could take our models were our model was actually the best in the market this year in terms of being able to predict that output would be significantly lower than what anybody expected. And so if you had that information, you knew that they were not going to have the FX reserves that they needed. And so w at what point you you know do you get to the point where you're using this stuff not to just benefit hedge fund traders and big agriculture companies, but the people who don't get to eat? I am so glad you asked that question. <laughs> so the, the other segment of customers that we work with is actually public institutions. Got it. We work with um, some of the world's largest foundations um, and academic institutions to actually create public goods. And so these public goods come in the form of software, but they also come in the form of models that we completely open source so that people can solve more localized problems on their end, but people can also help improve our models, right? And so by doing that, you've built this ecosystem of users that typically don't actually speak to each other, right? I mean, there's a lot of benefit to helping public institutions understand how private industry functions. <laughs> and there's a lot of benefit to private industry understanding what are the things that public institutions care most about. And so we're serving as the bridge. Um, Do you sell this data to, to countries all around the world? To, we're 
a pretty global company. We're not selling to every government around the world, but we have a footprint in pretty much every continent in the world right now. And when you kind of think about some of the the you, you've talked a lot um, publicly about China, India, uh, Africa, um, and some of the problems that they will face in the next ten years or so. How would your models be able to help them not face these problems? Yeah. Um, so I'll give you a, a tangible example. Okay. <laughs> um, so, and this is actually a real example of how our data was used in an East African country. I'll, I'll keep the country anonymous. Um, <laughs> so will be able to figure it out. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll be able to back it into it. Um, and so um, a lot. one of the, the most difficult things to optimize for is actually trade policy in countries and trade policy that aligns with productivity. Right? Right, explain because, what trade policy is. For so trade po tariffs. Got it. <laughs> the big war America's fighting yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> this happens everywhere in the world. Yep. Um, and so in this case, this country was looking to essentially ban the exports of corn out of that country into another country because they had heard that the rains were delayed in the, in basically all their corn producing regions. And so they were afraid of a food shortage in their own country. In their own country. And yeah. so therefore, their solution was ban exports. Now, that is a terrible idea because the minute you ban exports, there are deals that have been struck between farmers and buyers and also that the farmers will now default on. And you're also banning imports. Exactly. So now you have banks that have I wish Donald Trump on. understood this, but keep going. <laughs> so you have banks that default on, you'd have you know, customers that default on them, so then they'll lend less or their cost of lending will go up. So it has all sorts of ramifications to this. And so one of our clients had come in panic saying, hey, they're about to do this. Is this true? Well, we were in minutes able to construct an argument as to why it was a very bad idea. And the reason was, yes, the rains were delayed, and you could show that in our product, but you could also see that if you looked at the overall plant health by looking at satellite imagery, you saw that the, plant looked, the plants looked incredibly healthy. And the reason was, at the beginning of the season, there was so much water in the soil that essentially there was enough fuel in the tank to withstand delayed rains. Huh. So their natural solution was like, rains are delayed, yields are going to go down, let's ban. And we were like, well, rains are delayed, yes, but you have a lot of fuel in the tank, and so therefore the crops are not struggling. And actually, if you look at prices across cities in the country, they were declining. You don't have declining prices in stressed markets. And so they were able to essentially take that to the president's office where there was some analysis done for about two weeks and the ban was removed. Wow. Nice job. <laughs> so. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. When Zeke was a kid spending summers on his grandfather's farm, he knew he wanted to be part of bringing wholesome food to people. He started his artisanal honey company called Bee Raw, spelled B-E-E, -E, by creating a network of dozens of beekeepers across the country. When he got his honey into high-end national stores, he thought he'd made it. But there's a catch. When he saw the margins decreasing due to distributor fees and seasonal production, it made it difficult to meet retail demands. He decided to take his product primarily online. From the get-go, he featured PayPal prominently on his site because he knew it gave his customers confidence that he was a legitimate business with quality products. Over the past five years, PayPal has helped him convert more clicks into sales and expand his business. He's grown every year and added new items like tea, candles, and beauty products. 
So when you're ready to grow your online business, PayPal can help you turn shoppers into buyers. All you need to do is visit paypal.com slash growth to set up a business account. Once again, paypal.com slash growth, G-R-O-W-T-H, to set up a business account. Sign up for free today. So when you start to look at these these models, um, when you look into the future do you think that there's a solution where, okay, you're talking about rains, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about all these things, but there's genetically modified foods, right? Um, and my wife and I argue about this sometimes because she thinks they're the worst thing to ever happen to, to the planet and, and that we shouldn't be eating carrots that have scorpion DNA in them and they were grown in the desert. I personally don't mind. Um, but you see, you're seeing this happening in Silicon Valley. You're seeing um, uh, a huge push to try to create fake meats. Uh, and they're successful, right? People wouldn't call them fake. What's that? They're alternative. They're alternative meats. Uh, they taste really good. I like the fake burger uh, a lot. Um, but is there a solution that is not an agricultural solution but is a scientific solution? I mean, science plays a, a huge role in this, right? Um, I guess maybe like a, a a genetically modified solution is a better is a better answer. And if that is if not so, a seed, that's not a seed. That's 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 something that's grown in a lab. I mean, there's you know you, there's all these statistics out there about how people are saying you know in X period of time we'll be eating you know uh, half of our food diet will be you know I mean there's there's there's, there's I did a story when I used to work at the New York Times about. Um, one of the solutions for world hunger was to eat more bugs. Uh, and there were c- companies that were coming about that were working on There are on lots that. of companies working on um, bugs. And they actually, I ate some crickets. They were pretty good. I, they're crunchy. Very crunchy You know crickets, crickets. are in your um, red M&Ms. Really? Mm-hmm. No way. The coloring. Crickets are in red M&Ms? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I, I'm very excited that I've now learned this. Uh, um, what colors the other M&Ms? I don't. I have no idea. It's just a. It's a specific type of red. Yeah. That's needed. So I mean, I. I guess there's other huh. dyes and. Anyway. Random. <laughs> so back to the crickets. Um, is there a solution to stop world hunger and uh, more people that are getting that are not getting those four hundred billion Big Macs? Uh, that is not just an agricultural solution in better farming. Uh, but is a solution that comes from a, a lab somewhere. You know, when you're dealing with a population that's getting closer to 9 billion, and you're also dealing with a population that is trying to still grapple with getting basic foods, right? We're not talking about high, sophisticated diets. I think that the the faster solution and like the more immediate solution is agricultural, Hmm. Right. And then you have solutions such as alternative proteins, et cetera, start to play roles in societies that are already consuming large amounts of protein. Right. So can that be a solution in the U.S.? Absolutely. And could that actually have effects to the agricultural system in in bigger ways globally? Yes, because if you're having, you know, so if you just take the beef uh, analogy that I made, right, which is when I when I mentioned that, you know, beef corn-fed beef is a thing in America. It's not in Australia. Now, if you have alternative proteins that replace beef demand and beef demand goes down, then you actually have a lot more corn available, which is cereal demand, that could be exported to other regions in the world that need basic cereals. 
right? So you rebalance the system as opposed to having a single kind of bullet solution to, for everybody, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it Because makes a single sense. kilogram of beef requires six and a half kilograms of corn to produce. But we can't just live off corn, so we have no. to have the beef. Exactly. And so therefore, but if you have but if things, you can replace, if people are eating other is, thi- things it, other than beef, you could grow other foods on the same land that you're growing grains on. I mean, the grain you grow is, doesn't have to be corn. Isn't that a lot of the alternative meats are made from pea protein? Is that right? Um, well, there's a few different versions. There are pea protein-based uh, companies, but I, there are companies who also just use cultured, like actual cultured, cultured fake, fake meats. Fake meats yeah. um, uh, so do, what do you think, how does it play out, do you think, in the future? I mean, you, you, what is in 10 years um, when we are expe- were we expected to hit 9 billion? How long is it going to be before we're, we're at the 9 billion mark? It, well, the, 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 the big kind of, you know, uh, the 9 billion mark that everybody talks about is the 2050 problem. Okay. Um, what we're talking about is the 2027 problem, yeah. which is the 214 trillion calories. And that, that's because in 2023 the populations of Africa, India, and China actually intersect. In what way? They actually all become equal. Wow. And at so that, that point, you're basically, uh, no, you're looking at close to one and a half billion each. One and a half billion each? Yeah. Wow. And so... So that's going to be, so half of the population of the earth will be in three places. Yeah. Of which, one, uh, the continent of Africa is by far the youngest, right? So the trajectory is such that the population growth rate in China is flatlining and India is still growing, but growing slower than it did over the last 30 years. And in Africa, it's just rising rapidly because the median age you're dealing with on the continent at this stage is still like 17, 18. And so is it possible to solve the problem before? I mean, I feel like we, one of the big problems with us dumb humans, um, with all due respect, you're a lot smarter of a human than I am, but um, is that, we are unable to see problems unless they're happening right in front of us. It's, and climate change is a perfect example of that. You know, we, we're seeing in, in California these fires that have been happening. We are seeing the beginning of something new and that's only going to get worse. We have all these predictive models from even, even people who say that climate change isn't real are saying that the earth is going to get hotter by like seven degrees in the next hundred years in the White House and so on. We're seeing all these things happen, but we're not doing a single thing to stop it as a glo- as a from a global standpoint or even from an American standpoint. Um, and you're saying that these there are these statistics that are pointing to the fact that we are going to have uh, 1.5 billion people in all these in all these places each, and yet we're not doing anything to kind of remedy that. What what's going to happen? I mean. This is where I get very angry, right? Because we actually had a chance, right? In 2008, when you had record oil and gas prices, you also had record corn and wheat and rice. I mean, all food commodities also skyrocketed with energy prices. And the solution to that, because that that did lead to actual crises around the world. Many, many different countries were stressed and, you know, policymakers were huddled around, how do we solve this? How do we solve this? And then they came out with the statement of, how do we feed 9 billion people by 2050? I'm like, 2050 is so far away. Like, how did you get to that number? And that was your solution. 
that was your time to start solving it. That was your time to start driving change because there was an urgency around it and we lost that opportunity. And we're currently in a cycle of low commodity prices and, and low food prices. And so there's a certain amount of complacency that certainly exists in the system. And so part of what we've been going out and doing is saying, hey guys, let's look at the numbers. That's partially why we've also open sourced all our models and are completely open about our methodology because when people question, oh, your forecast is crap, we say, okay, great, well, here it is. What feedback would you like to give us so that we can make it better? Because our goal is to try and solve this problem. Our goal is not to build a black box that you know we just say trust us on. And so you know, I think the solution is A, having a system, and by, by a system I'm talking about an agricultural system, all the input providers, all the policy makers, and all the buyers of agricultural commodities starting to speak the same language, right? I mean, the fact that a single vocabulary didn't exist until we had to create it as a company is absurd to me. And so by starting to force these conversations to happen, I do believe you can start to drive change. And I do believe you start to drive opportunity, meaning you start to drive capital towards where there are opportunities and, and you know, investing and investments in certain regions of the world can also help drive that. Okay. But so one of the questions I have is uh, in the United States, there are 43.1 million people that live on the poverty line. We waste, um, what's the number? It's $161 billion worth of food every year. It's just tossed in the garbage. So here's a country where the food does exist yeah. and it's still not getting to the people. Can you even if you do solve the problem, are you are you going to actually solve the problem? Um, I think you can start to create a, a mechanism whereby ignoring the po problem becomes impossible. Does that make sense? Yep. Like so, there's I think too much in the food space in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world where people claim ignorance and they do so basically saying, oh, there are no tools. Like, I didn't know, or I knew too late, right? And so a company like ours, I mean, our goal at the end of the day is literally to have a free version of this product so everyone in society can have access to and, it. And how would everyone in society take advantage of it? I think everyone Like, in how society, would I take advantage of it? Well, I think you hear something, you just quickly log on, and you just check the fact, right? It's a search engine that we've built. You can just type in a question but, and but get what is the it, response. But how is that going to change something for, like, me, or is it more that it will change someone something for the people that I think it can start to drive citizens to ask really tough questions to policymakers, either at very local uh, at a very local level or at a kind of more international level in very collaborative ways that haven't been done before, right? You can just drive change through building critical mass around particular issues and driving that in such a way that, yeah, yes, you know, you can quickly check a fact and see if you're interested or not. But there are a lot of people who are in the business and who are in the world of advocacy that can start to use, use tools like that, uh, like ours, to start driving change. If you were to um, look at, you know, let's just take 10 years from now, um, you know, when you look at all these, all these predictions around climate change, there are people who say that uh, not only is the earth going to get warmer, but that as a result, people will become hungrier and we won't be able to feed people in certain areas because they won't be able to grow crops and so on, and which will in turn affect economies. Uh, which in turn starts to lead to essentially global wars, right? Um, there are lots of uh, studies that have said that 
you know, if, if the earth continues to heat up in certain areas of South America, like what we're seeing happen today with people coming across the border is, is just nothing compared to what could happen. Uh, and it's not, we, we can't just expect them to sit there and die. Like they are literally going to come forward. They're going to come north. They're going to go south. They're going to try to find places where food exists. Um, do you think that there's, a, I mean, does that sound like it's what's going to happen, A? And B, do you think there's a scenario where shit really has to hit the fan, essentially, before people turn around and actually start to pay attention to what's coming? I hope shit doesn't have to hit the fan before people do that. <laughs> you know, It did in 2008. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> it did. And then other things took over and... I mean, the, the fact, you know, I was in, um, in a meeting in Singapore about two weeks ago and I was talking about what the company does and it was a discussion about AI. And so the other people on the audience were combination people in tech, but a very random group of people. And one person raised their hand and said, you know, when, uh, I was the head of the world food program, which is, you know, the agency in the UN that supplies emergency crops to, to countries in need around the world. In 2008, we were all scrambling to understand what was driving prices up. At the time, we didn't have a clue that energy prices going up was going to drive corn prices up. Like if a product like Grow had existed, I think we could have prevented it because you look at energy too, right? And we said, of course, because energy is linked to agriculture. That's the finding these nonlinear relationships allows us to predict these things a lot faster, right? So, A, I don't think shit has to hit the fan the way it did in 2008 because companies like ours exist to be able to call it out earlier. And the louder we are, I think the more people will hear us. And we're starting to build a lot of viability working with very large name institutions to basically build that credibility base. Um, but the second part is, is just that if shit hits the fan to the extent that you're talking about, it becomes irreparable, right? At some, to some extent. And so there are solutions that I think are somewhere in between, right? And one of the things we've been working on, for example, is the world's first drought index. Do you know that there is not a single drought index that exists to measure agricultural drought on a real-time basis for the world? Why is that? Is it because there's no money in that? Or I mean, no, it's just no one. Everybody that creates in the space for the system has limited it to either a region. So the U.S. government has its version. It's called the U.S. Drought Monitor, right? And each country develops its own version. But the problem is when you think of things like climate change, it's global. It's not localized, right? And so there's connections between what happens in one region versus another. And so if you don't have a single way of measuring it across regions, then you're looking at incomparable indices, essentially, that tell you nothing. And so one of the things that we've developed is the world's first agricultural drought index. The reason we did it is we're hoping that that becomes a mechanism to start insuring against agricultural risk early such that you get paid out from financial institutions and are able to better plan shortage for shortages versus wait till shortages hit and then work backwards trying to get what you need. The, I remember I, I grew up in, um, in England and I remember as a kid watching um, – Bob Geldof on TV uh, singing We Are the World because it was always the famine in Africa and uh, uh, to take you back to the 80s. and I grew up in Ethiopia in the 80s. Oh, so wow. So there you was... go. So you probably were on my television. Yes. So, um, but there's these, there are these, I still remember these like stark images in my mind um, of those moments and, uh, and, you know, going to the market with my grandmother in England and 
people collecting money and, and, and things like that. And it was something that felt like it was a real problem globally. And today, the, you know, it wasn't until I, I literally hadn't even thought about famine in, in, in the world until the New York Times had a magazine feature a couple of like a month ago about um, the, uh, the drought and famine that's taking place in Syria um, and uh, in Turkey, based on what's happening with Saudi Arabia and all these things that are interconnected, on, you know, financially and the wars and so on. And um, there was a, a really devastating photo on the cover of the magazine of this uh, this little kid who essentially died about two weeks later from not having enough food. And I I keep, I keep thinking about that image and that that kid and um, and why I hadn't seen that. I didn't even know it existed until until a month ago. And is it is it is this the fact that we're becoming more connected taking us away from these other issues? Like we're kind of hyper focused on the stupid shit that's happening here, um, and not necessarily focused on the really important things that are happening there. Yeah, it's also just what are we putting our money into, and what are the problems we as society are really focused on solving, right? Because the 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 food system problem is very solvable like you do not need to have you do not need to rely on very archaic methods and thousands of spreadsheets to try and connect dots manually which takes you 3 months and you then lose the opportunity when you have the 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 technology that we have today right but if you look at ag tech as as kind of an overall overarching industry right agricultural technology last year was a record year for fundraising of companies in ag tech. And the record year was $475 million. That's it? That's it. Think of that in the context of a single funding round for a consumer tech yeah, company. Yeah, think of that in the context of the amount of money that these stupid scooter companies have raised yes. just to, to, to clutter the sidewalks of, of LA and New York and places like that. So you also That's just, it? $475 million? Yes. <laughs> so you just have highly misaligned so I'm, I, value systems to some extent. So I'm in the wrong business is what you're saying. If I want to go uh, tackle a tackle a, an area that needs help, it's it's ad, ag tech. Yeah. It's, I mean, agriculture is an $8 trillion a year industry that's been around for but why is it, is it, thousand it, It's years. just values that people are not focused on it? I think or is it that they're fat and gluttonous and, and want to get the above. to I the... Mean, to, the coffee shop quicker on their scooter. The average age of a person working in the agricultural space today is, you know, people who have on average been in their jobs for 20 plus years. Our biggest sales challenge is oftentimes we walk in and we're talking to people about the products that we have. And you have someone that's been doing their job the way they have for 25 years. They're like, you're trying to replace me with machines. And you're like, no, this, you know, augments how you work. It makes you a lot more efficient, etc." I mean, the USDA did a study where they looked at the number of jobs that were going to be created by the food system from, and at the time it was looking at 2015 to 2020. And the number of students enrolled in universities in particular majors that would be able to fill these roles. And this looked at everything from, you know, marketing and food companies and uh, looking at, you know, environmental scientists that are needed, et cetera. Uh, two thirds of the jobs were going to be left open by 2020. Wow. Cause you don't even have students that are s- signing up for it. You are listening to inside the hive with Nick Bilton. 
So it's Thanksgiving, and what better way to be thankful than for someone to give you something for free? So, dedicated Hive listeners, this week Robinhood is going to give listeners of the Hive a free stock like Apple, Ford, Sprint to help you build your portfolio. So what is Robinhood? It is the most beautiful, and I say beautiful in the same sentence as investing, it's the most beautiful investing app I've ever, ever seen. It allows you to buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, crypto. It's commission-free, completely commission-free. Other brokerages will charge you $10 every trade. Robinhood doesn't charge commissions or fees. It's so intuitive and simple and beautifully designed. It, it's just gorgeous. You have to check it out. Uh, they have all these features to help people that are just starting out trading or if you're a really experienced trader too. Um, there's a web platform that lets you view stocks and collections. You can see the 100 most popular stocks. You can see things like entertainment or social media. It's just stocks that have female CEOs. There's beautiful, intuitive design features like buy, hold, sell ratings. Uh, you can learn how to invest and build a portfolio. You can discover new stocks. Uh, you can get custom notifications where you can say, oh, uh, let me know if the stock goes up or down 5 or 10% or whatever it is. Um, you really have to check it out. It's gorgeous. It's intuitive. It's, it's so simple to use. And it really actually makes uh, trading stocks, whether you're buying one or a million, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, so once again, uh, Robinhood is giving listeners of this podcast a free stock, completely free. Uh, Apple, Ford, uh, Sprint, whatever it is. Uh, you can sign up today at Bilton.RobinHood.com. That's Bilton.RobinHood.com. You know how to spell my name. B-I-L-T-O-N dot Robinhood. You know how to spell Robinhood. And dot com, you know how to spell that. Bilton.RobinHood.com. Go get your free stock. Check it out. Gorgeous, amazing, beautiful. Boom. Um, all right. So I usually come to the end of this podcast on a very depressing note and oh, great. we can if you want we can go there or maybe we can be a little bit positive i don't know what do you I think vote positive uh you do feel positive I, i'm 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 like an eternal optimist i'm not i'm a pessimist um a miserable sad pessimist uh um what i have a couple of last questions okay. but before i get to this i was just curious what are some of the fascinating I, what's so interesting is hearing these stories of these things, that, these cross correlations that you're like, whoa, holy shit, I had no idea those things would, would match up. What, what are some of the, the fascinating things that you've seen in your data? Oh, um, useful or useless facts? Either or. I don't know. I just, I, you know, maybe some useless ones could be fun, actually. Okay. I think about a third of avocados in America are consumed on like five days of the year. A third of avocados in America are consumed on five days a year. Why is that? Is that Cinco de Mayo? That's one. Uh-huh. Super Bowl. Okay. Uh, I believe the third one is Fourth of July. Okay, that makes sense. Um, the fourth one is... Um, I'm trying to remember what the fourth holiday is. Like some American holiday that's not. Um, what's another? Um, that's fascinating, by the way. I cannot. I cannot wait to be. So, so every time you buy an avocado, you're going to be like, "When did you have this ready for me?" Yeah. Um, uh, okay, give me some more. Um, another one is in the context of China and America, um, and the trade war that's ongoing today. So the U.S. exported about twelve and a half billion dollars of soybeans to South uh, to to China last year. Um, the subsidies that were announced by Trump to make up for the trade war were magically in, to the tune of about 
12 billion dollars <laughs> huh. uh, and what's fascinating about that is that essentially you have a system where china actually this for the next two years doesn't have too many options in terms of where it's going to buy its soybeans from because south america had a had a drought it took in what it could from brazil um, so all the U.S. soybeans are actually just going elsewhere and then being shipped to China. And then China has also decided to subsidize its buyers from tariffs. And so taxpayers are paying up the wazoo in both countries and the trade is still happening. So it's all just one big fallacy? Mm, yeah, kind of. Uh that's so, it's so it's so frustrating. So that was one that was going to be that's one not of my positive. next. That's well, but that was going to be one of my next questions. Is 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 how is Trump's trade war affecting all these things? Well, it's created a massive amount of obviously uncertainty in the world around the relationship between China and the U.S. U.S. soybean markets, which I mean, U.S. soybean production does drive global pricing, um, but. What's been fascinating for us as a company as we start diving into these issues much deeper, and what we found is, you know, the U.S. is busy fighting this war for the next, it has a two to three year horizon in terms of how it's thinking of how it has the upper hand on China. Whereas China has, you know, a 25 to 50 year strategy around how it's going to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the things um, that we've looked at is all the land that China has acquired around the world. So China's definition of trade and trade diversification doesn't include just buying from U.S. farmers or just buying from Brazilian farmers. It also includes the acquisition of diversified assets around the world. So in the last 15 years, China's just been quietly buying up land everywhere from South America to Africa to parts of Asia, where this land is not even productive yet. But if it needed to essentially flip it to become productive land, you're looking at a situation where your soybeans are definitely not going to China. That and and yet we, and and it's a typical you know the U.S. looks two feet out and and China's looking you know a thousand right. Yep. Um, and do you think it gets to a point where that happens and we end up shooting ourselves in the foot? I think it's happening. Hmm. I think China's you know it's China and the U.S. are obviously dealing with the today and the tomorrow simultaneously. But but if you look at China's, you know, last five-year plan, which was laid out in 2016, it's 2016 to 2020, China did something really interesting where on agriculture and, and food security, their, their goal was self-sufficiency in cereal grains and absolute food security. Now, if you think of what that meant, you know, every country today, when we say is a country food secure, we say, are they producing the food they need to eat? Whereas China said, no, actually, we're not talking about self-sufficiency of everything. We just need self-sufficiency of the basics. Self-sufficiency to avoid war and chaos. Mm. So you just need self-sufficiency in corn and wheat and in rice. And then you need absolute food security. And they laid out a plan of how they're going to achieve absolute food security, which includes this term called diversification of trade. But again, diversification of trade is China buying Syngenta. It's China buying Smithfield food. And it's China buying a lot of agricultural land, tens of millions of acres of land around the world that it can convert into productive land. You know, it tried to buy 19 million acres of land in Australia in one fell swoop. What about happened? a year and a half. The Australian government uh, blocked it as a national security threat. Huh. Wow, that's terrifying. So, and that was 1% of... Australia's land. I mean, <laughs> um, it's like 
pretty. Uh, it, I mean, it's amazing what they're doing. Uh, do you think when you look at these all this all this um, these statistics, these these numbers, uh, what they're buying? Uh, do you think that um, it's just a matter of time before China becomes the global superpower? Oh, yeah, I think it, it's it's very quickly becoming that. Um, and if you go to other parts of the world, I, I spend a lot of time in Asia, I spend a lot of time in Africa, I spend a lot of time in South America. China is the superpower that all of these countries talk about today. Hmm. I mean, everything is pegged to the dollar and everything is talked about in dollar terms. But in terms of the superpower in the room that everybody's kind of talking about and wondering what they're up to next, you're not hearing as much as you used to around like, what's the U.S. going to do next here? Hmm. You know, but everybody's yeah. asking, what's China doing next? And so if our definition of superpower is, you know, who people care about the most and who's most, if that's attached to relevance to some extent, it's already doing that. It's doing it very quietly. All right. So my last question is, if you um, had a magic wand to fix all of this stuff, you can, un- you can only fix one thing. What would it be? I'm like, I, I, and I, and I, it's interesting because I, the more you, I hear you talking, the more it seems that everything, everything affects everything. Yes. And so I was thinking like, oh, well, it's going to be climate change because then we solve that whole problem. But it feels like there is no, no one thing. No, there is. And, and that's, I mean, part of what drives us nuts and keeps us so excited about the work that we do is that every time you feel like you've reached the limits of what matters, you're like, oh my gosh, and I found something else that matters, right? And and this is why having an AI that does it for you becomes important because it's actually humanly impossible to know all of these connections and map them out manually, right? But if I had one thing I could solve, um, I'd actually solve the the credit problem. Right? So if you look at the percent of populations around the world that are basically dedicated to farming and agriculture and the percentage of outstanding bank loans, there's a complete mismatch. Um, so if I use a stat that I know, 63% of Africa's population works in agriculture. Less than 1% of outstanding bank loans across the continent have any exposure to agriculture. Hmm. How do you solve the productivity problem and how do you solve the food problem if you don't solve the capital problem. So if I had like a magic wand and unlimited money, I would say somebody should give me a pool of money so I could start a bank and we would basically build the risk models using our AI and come up with really efficient ways to drive more capital into the markets. I have that magic wand. Here you go. I'm just kidding. Uh, um, actually, this last, second last 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 question actually is about the AI. Um, how did you even begin to build it? Was it? Uh, did you have any background in this, or did you partner with people that did? Or well, um, I have two, I have two co-founders. Um, my uh, co-founder, who's our CTO, um, was a very early engineer at Google, um, and then led. Um, one of the tech teams that built Ad Exchange, which mm. was fueling, selling lots of ads on the internet. And then as he was leaving Google, he, the last thing he did was actually build the product that cannibalized selling ads because he was tired of selling ads online. I thought you were going to so, say, as he left Google, the first thing he did was like steal something from the photocopy machine <laughs> or something. But No. Um, and so obviously for us, it's, it's, it's 
HI and AI. HI is the human intelligence part. So we've been able to build a team that's very, very strong on deep domain expertise. We have in-house hydrologists, plant scientists, wow. climatologists, market research analysts who you know ran hedge funds for 25 years. And the whole idea is that they say, this is how the market works. This is how plant science works. This is how it all works. And then you pair them up with world-class engineers, like our CTO and the team, that the, the engineering team he's built. And you essentially merge those two. And my job as, as CEO and founder was just being the translator. I mean, mm. I had no background in this. I left because there was a problem to solve. Technology, AI, all of that was just a mechanism that was used to then solve this problem that I set out to solve. But... I didn't leave to start a tech company. Uh, and how many people work for the company? We're now uh, like almost 60. Wow, cool. So, Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. This has been truly fascinating. I, I want to go and like look up all these all other these. statistics. <laughs> yeah. The useless ones is all I really care about. Uh, I'll send you all the useless ones. Send them ones. to me. Send them to me. Uh, we'll tweet them out from the, uh, from the Vanity Fair uh, Twitter handle. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks to my guest this week, Sarah Menker. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, PayPal and Robinhood. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.